Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Welcome to another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have you back on what here in the metro Atlanta area is a, a dark and stormy day. That's all we need is storms again moving through uh, bad weather. Don't we have enough on our plate that we don't have to deal with that again? I mean, obviously, I always say I hope that you're all being safe and taking care of yourselves in the midst of a pandemic. Now, I hope you'll keep your eye on the weather wherever you are in Georgia and listen uh, if, certainly here at GPB Radio, we'll tell you, uh, and wherever you get your source for weather, uh, if anything really threatening is heading your way. I, I hope we all get through the day in, in good health and uh, safely. Um, we're going to talk about uh, public health again. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, the virus in terms of how viruses behave as we start the show uh, I want to give you the latest figures that we have from the Department of Health. Um, it, as of uh, 7 o'clock last night, the Department of Public Health confirms that we now have 21,102 confirmed cases of COVID-19. That's up 936 in the past 24 hours and uh, over 1,700 in <clears throat> excuse me, 48 hours. It means the numbers are still increasing every day. Um, what we don't know, and in a few minutes when we turn to our conversation, I'll be interested in hearing what our guests have to say, is how the line is trending here, uh, because that has a big impact on Governor Kemp's decision to reopen the state in the next couple of days. We have 846 deaths, sadly, 28 in the last 24 hours alone, and we have 4,018 hospitalizations, 113, 333 people more confined to the hospital in just the last uh, 24 hours. Um, all right, let's get right to the show and uh, start talking about uh, the news of the virus today. First of all, I'm glad to welcome back Kevin Riley. He, of course, is the editor of the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And, uh, Kevin, we're always glad to welcome you uh, primarily on our Thursday show. Thanks for being with us. Bill, it's a pleasure. I, I can't tell you. I've always loved doing the show, but there's something I really look forward to these Thursday mornings to hear your voice again, to get to talk to some of the folks we always get to talk to. I'm sure your listeners feel the same. It's just a bit of uh, normalcy in, in a time when uh, you're looking for as much of that as you can find. So it's great to just hear your voice. Yeah, well, Kevin, the same goes back to you. Uh, I, I appreciate what you're saying. Um, and it's good to hear the voices of our two guests today who are coming back for another appearance on the show. Uh, Dr. Mark Rosenberg is with us. He is the former CEO of the Task Force for Global Health, a Decatur-based world health uh, organization, global health organization, that Mark... I, you know, I didn't say this the last time you were on, but I think it's worth mentioning. I, I, the Task Force for Global Health is one of the best-kept secrets in the public health world in Georgia. Uh, the, the organization which you spent so many years uh, directing 
is one of the largest and most consequential uh, public health organizations in the world. The work that you've done there is remarkable. Give us, give us your 30-second uh, 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 take on the task force. Well, thanks, Bill. I think it has an incredible staff. And what they did was they rose from a small organization that was started by three people to one that now has maybe 175 people and is ranked by Forbes as someplace between the second and the fourth largest nonprofit in the country. And they do that because they get lots of contributions, uh, many from large pharmaceutical companies, and use the medicines to eliminate or eradicate diseases around the world, especially in poor countries. So it's God's work that they do. And they do this disease elimination very strategically using data to do what they do. So this epidemic here fits into their uh, wheelhouse. I think a lot of the programs and approaches they've developed are useful here. We've learned a lot from eliminating and eradicating other diseases that can um, help us understand how to proceed with this one. And of course, um, one of the things that you did in your work at the task force was interact pretty consequentially with the World Health Organization. And uh, so a little later in the show, we're going to talk about the WHO and its significance and uh, try to dispel some of the uh, myths that have risen up around the uh, president's attacks on the WHO. The organization does deserve some criticism, uh, but I also think it's going to be important to talk about its value. So, Mark, we'll do that a bit later in the show, and I'm glad you're here for that. Uh, we're also joined again today by Joshua Weitz, who we're glad to have back. Uh, Dr. Weitz is a professor in the School of Biological Sciences at Georgia Tech. He also heads the Weitz Group, which um, really caught my eye when the pandemic was getting started, because the primary mission of the group is to understand how viruses transform human health and the fate of our planet. Uh, uh, Joshua, thank you for being back. You're well poised, I think it's safe to say, to talk about where we stand with coronavirus today, yes? Well, I appreciate you having me back on. And like Mark, I also wanted to highlight the fact that as a group focusing on viral impacts, we also have in some sense a global imprint. The folks in the group have come from all over the world to work with us. We have people from across the United States, but also from Europe and Asia. And we really are focused now, in addition to the work we've been doing last year, on a third shift approach to try to understand how can we control this outbreak? How can models come into play? And how can we think strategically about interventions? Because it's clear that with uh, time that it's going to take to develop therapeutics and vaccines, we really need to think strategically about ways that traditional public health methods and new methods, including digital approaches, can help uh, slow down control and prevent more transmission. And again, I say so glad that you are here, given what you just said to us. Uh, let's let's get started, though. Kevin, uh, We I think we've got to start with the politics of the virus today. It's been a couple of days now, a couple of evenings since Governor Kemp startled 
much of the state, including the members of his own task force, who he hadn't notified in advance, or at least some of them, that he was going to do this, uh, and uh, others across the country, when he announced he thought it was time to uh, slowly begin reopening the state for business, he was getting encouragement from the White House. Uh, President Trump uh, said that governors should uh, uh, do what they needed to do on their own time schedule. He seemed to be happy that Kemp was looking at opening things up a bit. And then we got to uh, the briefing last night when the president had this to say. I told the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, that I disagree strongly with his decision to open certain facilities which are in violation of the phase one guidelines for the incredible people of Georgia. They're incredible people. I love those people. They are they're great. They've been strong, resolute. But at the same time, he must do what he thinks is right. I want him to do what he thinks is right. Uh, but I disagree with him on what he's doing. Kevin Riley, uh, it, it must have come as something of a shock to Governor Kemp. Uh, his people say that uh, he, that he had had a conversation, a phone conversation with the president and Vice President Pence uh, just hours before that statement in which they had both uh, congratulated him and encouraged him to move forward. Uh, so, among other things, this just exacerbates the confusion I think all of us feel here about just what is happening in Georgia. Kevin? I think you've got it there, Bill. Confusion is the is the watchword. I mean, at every single level, at the highest level of politics and leadership for our state, uh, there's confusion. I mean, the governor's confused. His Everyone's confused. And then if you just keep thinking about it, I mean, if you're an average citizen in Georgia, what are you supposed to think? Should you listen to the president? Should you listen to the governor? And then if you're a business, I mean, should you open? Should you not open? I just think that it's a, it's a terrible thing. And, of course, we know from a political point of view how much Governor Kemp has, has prospered because of his relationship with the president. But as he found out yesterday, the hard way is that, you know, you can also suffer in that relationship. And I've got to believe he was absolutely floored. And every indication we have in our reporting is that not only were they not expecting this, there, his staff is completely confused about how to react and what to do next. And as you know, he took to Twitter last night and said, well, I'm going to stay the course, which um, I think a lot of people would disagree with, and now even the president disagrees with him. So we'll have to see what happens. We're expecting more news uh, out of the governor's office today. Tom Faust just uh, uh, told me that CNN moved a story a few minutes ago saying that the tr- president's reversal on Georgia was a result of what he was told by his coronavirus task force. Apparently, they prevailed upon him uh, to reverse his support for Governor Kemp, and and we can only imagine must have said that it's still a bit too dangerous for the state to begin opening for business. Kevin, that's new. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting because both of them, as leaders, have task task forces, and they they seem to uh, sort of uh, select or be very selective about how closely they listen 
to that advice. Um, and, you know, Governor Kemp, in his original announcement, made references to data and information. Well, I think if, if he would just share whatever data he's looking at and that he's relying on with all of the public, then maybe people would understand his thinking and it could at least be understood. But um, I, I can't see why there would be different point of, points of view on this. I mean, it's basic science, as I think we're going to hear from our guest today, and it is not uh, open to that much interpretation. Yeah, uh, Kevin and Mark, I, I mean, I'm sorry, Joshua and Mark, I, I want to pick up on what Kevin just said. Uh, Governor Kemp, in making his announcement that it was time to slowly reopen, and just to remind people, on Friday, there are certain businesses, tattoo parlors, massage uh, therapists, um, bowling alleys, theaters, and a few others that are allowed to reopen but the shelter-in-place order is still in place. Social distancing has to be practiced, and all that in and of itself is confusing. Okay, we can talk about that more. But in the meantime, the governor said in announcing all this, this is driven by data. Joshua, let me start with you because you're a data guy first and foremost. What data do you imagine the governor is looking at? And as you look at the various models uh, that others are putting up out, IHME among many others, what are you seeing that uh, gives the uh, the okay for us to get back to business here? Well, Bill, put simply, I don't see the rationale. And I think Kevin said it, but there's not that much disagreement here. Yes, there is data, and there are things that we should be looking for and one could argue that uh, cases and fatalities have flattened to some extent, meaning over the last couple of weeks, and you don't want to just look at the last few days, but really the last couple of weeks, there's on the order of 600-plus new cases reported to the Georgia Department of Health, Public Health every day, 30-plus, sometimes more deaths every day. And all of that indicates that the social distancing that we've been doing has taken effect positively. I mean, it could be far worse. So I think we should look positively, despite this very bad news, that the uh, actions that individuals have been taking, often in very difficult circumstances, have made an impact. But that doesn't mean that the fundamentals have changed, and that's in really two senses. One is that nearly all of us remain susceptible to infection. So there's no indication and no evidence, and I mean that literally no evidence in Georgia because we haven't seen the results of large-scale what are called serological surveys, which would indicate how many people may have been infected and recovered. But based on other work and the work we're already seeing in terms of infection, we're almost all susceptible, which means that if we go back to business as usual or something approximate thereof, we have the risk of being infected severely or fatally and passing that infection on to others. And the other issue from a data side is that it's not just about the trend. It's about what is the infrastructure to continue a trend downwards. So once you start to see sustained levels of cases going down, which means that each individual is not necessarily transmitting to more than one individual, the question then becomes, can we keep doing that? And that requires more testing, more tracing, and more of the kind of public health infrastructure that is shovel-ready in place. And on both accounts, I don't necessarily see the evidence for this abrupt change. You know, Mark, uh, a couple of points, and then you should take over. 
Uh, we Georgia remains among the nation's worst in terms of the number of COVID-19 cases and deaths. Yesterday, we talked about the number of deaths per 100,000 Georgia's ranks. Unfortunately, rather high. Certainly, it's the highest in the South, with the exception of Louisiana. It ranks in the bottom 10 in testing uh, per capita. And we still, you know, we're talking now about expanding testing. But I have to say, Mark, when I hear the governor talk about reopening for business and that sort of thing, just as an individual, you know, on one hand, I've been really strict about how to behave. I haven't left my house uh, to go into a store in weeks and weeks. But when I hear the governor say it's time to start thinking about getting back to business, I think to myself, well, gee, maybe I ought to ride down the street to the supermarket. I'll, I'll be okay. It's, things are getting better. This is dangerous thinking, Mark. Um, yeah, I am sympathetic to you, and I am sympathetic to the governor. I think he has a really tough balancing act. I'm really sympathetic to people who are out of work, who are worried about getting food for their family, a roof over their heads, and worried about the future of the economy. These are very, very real and very important issues. And the governor has to balance the two. But right now, he doesn't know how to do it. And this is not different from something in medicine, and maybe this will be easier for people to understand, but in the area of cancer, when we're fighting cancer, you need cancer chemotherapies that stop the tumor. It's like we need practices that will stop the virus, but you also need to protect the patient's vital organs. We need to protect the vital parts of our economy. And in cancer, you can't figure out what drugs will do both, what will get rid of the tumor and protect the patient. You can't figure that out in your head. It's much too complicated. And it's the same thing here, balancing fighting the virus with restoring the economy. You can't figure it out in your head. Of course, there's confusion because we don't know how to do it. We don't know the trade-offs. Two simultaneous equations are very hard to solve in your head, but there's a way. There's a way to solve them. We have figured out cancer treatments that save lives without killing the patient. And here, what we need to do is use science. We need That's how we find cancer chemotherapies. We do the tests. We see what works. We can't do it in our head. But we do the test, and we've come to accept that we need research at NIH. We need the research to tell us what works. And here we need research, and to do the science, we need a much better picture of our enemy, of the coronavirus. We need to know what would be the effect of opening hair salons. What's the effect of opening restaurants? We need those data, but we don't have it. And our picture is really incomplete. I think... To understand why we need a picture of this virus, you know that little toy where you have a piece of plastic and there's all these needles embedded in it, and you can push your hand into the needles and make a picture on the other side, or you can push it against your face and make a silhouette in the needles. That gives us a picture of what's going on. Right now, we have a piece of plastic with three or four pins in it. You can't get a picture of what's happening. You can't do the science. 
you can't measure the impact of your changes as long as you only have three or four needles, or even if you have 10 or 20 needles, you need the full picture. Those data points are the data we need to get by following cases, by doing contact tracing, by finding where is it, what's happening in each place, and what happens as a result of the changes you make. But we can do this scientifically, and I think the governor can turn this around by investing very heavily in getting those data getting us 10,000 pins in the state so we can see what's happening and then we can measure the impact of what he does. These are really complicated questions and the only way we can find out what works to achieve both goals is by getting the data and measuring really carefully as we go. But it's possible and he can turn this around and do a good job with more data. Kevin? Well, you know, I want to build on Mark's point because I do think it's important that, in fairness to the governor, we recognize the pressure he's under. I was talking to Greg Lustein, our reporter who covers the governor yesterday, and he was he visited Monroe County, where uh, the, the the governor's support is strong. In fact, I think he won at a sort of a margin of three to one in that county. And he said people there who are urging him to open things up are just going along and planning to open their businesses. And I think he's hearing from a lot of people like that who believe that they are being destroyed economically and that they need an opportunity to try to make a living and to feed their families and pay their mortgages. And we saw that in his press conference. He was very, very passionate about that. What I would say, and, and we, we used this line in our editorial of the other day, um, by the way, that's my dog. He loves the show. He must be listening. I apologize for that. Um, but, you know, he, the governor likes to use that phrase, chopping wood, which he borrowed from the University of Georgia football coach, uh, Kirby Smart, which is a reference to doing all the, the basic hard work to prepare for the big game. Well, I think what Mark is urging the governor to do is chop some wood. You need to have a lot of real basic hard work done, and then the big decisions will get easier and work out better. Yeah, I'm just jumping Yeah, go ahead, ahead, Joshua. Which is that you know, I'm very sympathetic as well, but also I think we have to recognize that that's why we have political leaders and decision makers to make hard choices. And what I'm concerned about is that the hard choices, the buck has been passed down to the small business owner, to the individual who is forced to make an impossible choice between their health and their livelihood. So that you're telling people to be worried about this virus, but at the same time, not giving them the economic resources so that they can, for as long as possible, so that we can, as you say, chop the wood to get the right level of data and de-risk as much as we can that trip to the supermarket. De-risk as much as we can the context for which someone is going to be at work with other people. And we have already done quite a lot. And I mean to praise the people who are working in the Georgia Department of Public Health who are doing their best, but they can only do their best with the data they have. And so when we look across the state, you mentioned, I think, uh, where Georgia is vis-a-vis the South, and there are about 800 deaths reported. You know, those are confirmed. That's probably an underestimate. But even if we use that number, we're talking about something on the order of 10 deaths per 100,000. But we've already looked across the state and seen that there are places, hotspots, which are far worse. Dowdy County is one example that has 100-plus fatalities per 100,000. 
right? That's a tenfold increase in a particular region, and nearby counties have similar issues. So we have an issue right now where we're aware that as a state, there are certain places where it's no evidence that things are under control, and other places which may be better, but we want to keep them under control. So you know, when I think about where science can come in here, and I understand there's political debates and there are pressures on both sides, but it's not as if we're in a situation where one of us is going to argue the earth is round and the other is going to say the earth is flat and we're going to compromise on an oval. Right? We have a situation where there is near certainty that we remain largely susceptible, that there are still circulating cases, and that we don't have a good enough handle on the number of circulating cases. And for all those reasons, as much as I'm sympathetic to the difficult position the government might be in, that's precisely the reason why there needs to be more investment in the kind of infrastructure, the testing and the tracing, so that individuals can feel safe when the right moment comes to reopen safely. I was just going to say that investment in getting more data and understanding how to proceed is one of the best investments our governor can make right now. And if you look at the value to the economy and the value of saving lives, you know, nationally, the estimate is that if we hadn't taken these measures of social distancing and isolation, we might have lost 2 million lives in this country. And how, many, how much is it worth to have saved 2 million lives? But if you use the government's estimate of $10 million per life, you saved about $21 trillion by the public health measures we've been using. And what it cost us, that's eight times the $3 trillion that Congress is spending. So we've saved a lot, but these are tough trade-offs, and we need better information to decide how to make them locally and in our state. Okay, let me jump in because uh, it's time for us to get to a break. When we come back, uh, I want to talk about another area of I think is confusing people. It's certainly confusing me. We're all becoming more and more familiar with these models that uh, project what we might see in terms of cases, deaths, uh, and they vary. They go back and forth. And I would really love Joshua, I think, is uh, somebody who we can ask about this, and Mark can weigh in at it as well. But just what should we make, for instance, of the WHME model right now? And why is it to continue to be valuable? We'll do that and more when we return on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. We're back on Political Rewind. Uh, we have uh, Kevin Riley, editor of the AJC, Mark Rosenberg, and uh, Joshua White's with us uh, today. Both of them uh, have deep, deep experience in dealing with uh, issues of public health over the years. Uh, Joshua White's at Georgia Tech, Mark Rosenberg as the uh, long-serving CEO of the Task Force for Global Health. Joshua, um, We've all started watching models more than we used to. The first uh, time I became aware of you was when I read quotes from you of your various models 
for how the coronavirus could impact us, the number of deaths we could have in Georgia based on whether the state took shelter in place, uh, decided to do that, whether they did nothing. So you've done modeling yourself. But when I look at the IHME model, which has sort of become the gold standard, it varies from day to day. On some days, it tells me that the peak was already passed on April 7th. On others, it says today, I think it shows the peak uh, still ahead of us. I don't have it up in my screen right this minute. Um, it, so because there are governments that are using these models to make decisions, but don't we don't understand these things. What are, we, what are, what are these all about, and, and what, how are they arrived upon? Sure. So this is a big kind of question. I think it's very important in this moment, particularly given, as Mark said, that we're trying to work in a landscape where we're not certain about all features of how many cases there really are, how many, uh, let's say, deaths are, are we going to be able to avoid by using certain metrics because the future is uncertain. So we turn to models, which are really meant to try and replicate, to some extent, the understanding we have about how this virus spreads and integrate that with other assumptions we have about the way that different kinds of behaviors will impact and change the future scenarios. So I think the most important thing that I can say about the use of these models is that the primary use is in some sense to avoid a bad outcome, meaning that when one looks forward in these models and sees this is that potential scenario, as Mark said, of 2 million deaths or uh, multiple hundreds of thousands in the UK, we don't want to have that scenario. So we're trying to look what would happen if we don't act and then provide different scenarios for strategic decision-making. Now, the IAME model, this Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation model out of the University of Washington, has been used by many. I think that's what you're referring to, um, and including it's been invoked by the President's Task Force and others. Now, I have some bad news for you, which is I don't understand fundamentally why this model is being used in strategic long-term decision-making. There are many ways that we explain why. There are many ways that we use models. This model assumes that cases must go up and down. So it assumes fundamentally that epidemics work according to some 19th century law called Farr's Law, that there's a single peak and then when it passes, it's done. There's no law that says there has to be only a single peak. And it may be appropriate in a disease in which has low fatality rates and people don't change their behavior that much. And then there often is a single peak and then it goes back down and then may that return over multiple years. But in the case of COVID-19, given the fatality rates that people can see the severity, we change behavior. And because we change behavior, then the number of cases changes and we're no longer on this sort of smooth up and down trajectory. So the reason why the IHME model keeps changing its forecast is because when it makes a projection, it's going to be wrong. And then, in a good sense, that model and other models retrain themselves on where we are now, just as if you made a seven-day weather projection. And three days later, you realize that the storm is off track of what you made seven days ago. You don't keep sticking with your projection. You recalculate the future scenarios based on where the storm is. That's the same idea here. The issue with IHME is that it might be right for the next seven days or 10 days, but we're talking about decisions that have to be made over weeks and months. We can't yo-yo on lockdowns. We can't yo-yo on 
public health interventions. So I am concerned that we're missing also a major point. This talk of a peak being passed gives the impression that once the peak is passed, we're okay because we have passed the worst part of the pandemic locally. That is fundamentally not true. Until that, Kevin, we, that is yeah. incredibly important. Absolutely. I mean, what Josh is saying is that, look, um, it, it's, it's sort of like um, if you were watching the stock market and making your lifetime investment decisions minute to minute. I mean, I don't know if that's an appropriate metaphor, but the, the kinds of data that we really need our leaders to be paying attention to is not, oh, it's good today, so let's do this. It's bad tomorrow, let's do that. We need a long horizon on this thing. I, I mean, I Mark, weigh in, but I, I think that's what I'm hearing. I think there are some decisions that are going to be long-term decisions that we need to make, and some we can make and modify acutely. But I think what you, Kevin, and Josh have said is not only that we're not following the model where there's one peak, and then it's all the all the in free. Okay, we're done. It's over. We've gotten past that. We're finished. Not at all. Not at all. And in fact, what we have done is we have flattened the curve. We have pressed it downwards, and it's going to go out much, much further. It's going to last a long time. And the part on the right after the peak is the tail of the curve. And what we've done is we've lengthened the tail, and there are more cases that are going to go for a very long time. So using in our heads the notion that once we pass the peak, it's over and we're done is really a counterproductive idea. And I think a lot of people have that idea in mind. I think people are also starting to think about this epidemic as having different phases. And what I would suggest is that we not use the term phases, but instead use the term different streams of work that have to be ongoing, because phases suggest when you move on from the initial phase, then we move to something else, and we can stop the social distancing. We can let up on closures. We can let up on sanitation and hand washing. No. Those things, because we have a long tail and many susceptibles, as Josh has said, we need to continue everything that we started. We can't let up on everything. And those streams need to continue. It's not like everything in the first phase, okay, phew, we're finished, we're done with that. Now let's take on opening the economy. No, we're adding a new stream to the other streams that are still ongoing the testing, the treatment of patients, the hand washing, the social isolation, planning for the next epidemic, all those have to keep on going as we start to add opening things up. And the only way we can tell the effect of opening things up is by being able to measure what impact they actually have. But I, I wanna tell us or help us get rid of this idea that we're done with phase one and all the things that were in phase one. 
No, that's going to continue for a very long time as we add new streams of work to this process. It's not either or. It's not either public health measures or restoring the economy. They've both got to go on at the same time. In fact, Mark, the more Kevin, that, well, one ahead. of the things I wanted to uh, bring up, too, uh, and I, you know, we're going to – I know we're out of time, Bill, to get to everything we'd like to get to, but the governor – we have a story this morning about the state's efforts to uh, implement contact tracing. And I, I wanted to hear – and I guess we'll ask Josh first. I mean, what, what, uh, what does that take? I mean, I'm assuming that that is a Herculean effort, especially starting from zero. And we know that the state of Massachusetts has already had something like this going, I think, for a few weeks. Every time there is a reference to it, um, the details seem to be quickly skirted over, or there seems to be a reference to, oh, there are these digital tools that we can use. But, I mean, what would it take to do contract tracing in Georgia, and what would it mean if we could do it uh, in the way that it's intended to be done? Well, I'll give a partial answer. Gotcha. Then I'll, Yeah, I'll give a partial answer, then I'll, I'll defer to Mark. And the partial answer is that we have to have these sorts of tracking and tracing plans in place, shovel ready, when we're in this opening up phase. It can't be something that's going to come later. And part of the reason is that fundamentally, and this goes back to another important point, that testing is for prevention. We're testing and tracing not to then get a metric that we don't take action on. We're doing it precisely to take action on. The idea of contact tracing is to reduce transmission. That if one finds an individual who's been exposed and infected with COVID-19, reaching out to their contacts, there's some initiatives at the University of Washington are the ones that I'm more familiar with. It's called Next Trace. There are some in Massachusetts. There's actually a second initiative, a UW-Microsoft partnership, and there's been talk of partnerships in Georgia. But these things are difficult. They can use hybrid approaches, a mix of reaching out to contacts via text messages. People can opt in and out. If they opt in, then there has to be the work of having a conversation with those people to try to get them to A, quarantine, and B, get tested themselves. And time is of the essence. The faster one moves, you can identify someone who might have been exposed, and if they're tested, so tracing and testing work together, and if that comes back positive, so we have to have really at-will testing to those who need it. If it comes back positive, then you have a chance to reduce the number of further transmissions that that person has. So this is all part of strategic action taking, and it has to be ready, again, so that people can safely reengage. And Mark will probably say more about the way that this has worked historically to really put an end to other diseases in some cases, or at least reduce them locally. Well, thanks, Josh. I think let me simplify the contact tracing model, and let's assume that there's only one person who's come into Georgia who has the coronavirus and that we have borders around our state. So this one person comes in and this person could be spreading the virus to others. Let's say we talk to this person and we find out everyone that this person has had contact with in the last seven days. And maybe there's 250 people that he's had fairly close contact with. We get the names of those people. We go to those people. We talk to them. We test everyone. And we continue to follow everyone. We 
take everyone who tests positive and we isolate them. If we do that, there's no way that the virus can spread beyond that initial person and the other 250 people. And we'll say we contained the virus. By tracing this one person's contacts, finding all the people who are positive, keeping them contained until they are better or if they get sick and die, we follow all of them and we don't let them out. We don't let it out. We have contained the virus. And that's part of the idea of contact tracing. It's more complex if we had two people because then we wouldn't have just 250 contacts to manage. We'd have 500 contacts we'd have to trace and contain all the positive ones. But we could do it. We could mobilize enough people to do that. But what if we had 10? But the issue becomes... Cases? I'm sorry, Mark, I didn't mean to interrupt you. uh, Well, I'm sorry, Bill, for going on. But if we had 10, we'd need more contracts. If we had 100, we'd need to trace even more contacts. And it can be done. We just need to mobilize the manpower and the person power to be able to do it and invest in it. It's harder to see how it would work when we have 1,800 cases But in the case of smallpox in India, there was one state at one time where they were having 1,500 new cases a day, 1,500 new cases a day, but they mobilized enough people to trace those contacts and contain the people. They mobilized 250,000 contract tracers to participate in this effort, and they did it. We can do it here. All right, let me let me jump up. in because I'm late to get to another. I'm sorry, Mark. I'm late to get to another break, uh, and so sure. I really need to to do that. Um, let's pause for a couple minutes. In fact, less than that. We'll just pause for a moment and come back and continue our conversation. Quick program note as we continue on Political Rewind today. Tomorrow we're convening a panel of mayors, Mayor Hardy Davis of Augusta, Mayor Rusty Paul of Sandy Springs, and Mayor Bo Duro of Albany uh, to talk about uh, how they're handling uh, the news that they are supposed to start opening for business and also to report in a course on how each of their cities are doing as the virus continues to affect the population here. Uh, Real quickly, because I do want to get a a little bit in about the World Health Organization, but Joshua, um, this is sort of a depressing conversation because it sounds to me like as we think about, oh, we're going to start reopening for business, when can we go back to our our jobs, those of us who are fortunate enough to work at home, uh, we're not now looking at a couple of weeks from now. Uh, We could be living... Uh, with some of this for months to come, based on what I'm hearing you and Mark say? Well, I want to say a few things. First of all, I hope it's not too depressing, but it should be a dose of realism. And the more that we accept the reality of the situation, the more optimism we can have because we'll take the appropriate steps. We can't engage in magical thinking that somehow, on its own, the virus will go away We'll pass a peak and that's it. So to go back to Kevin's 
question, and I'll say a few things about businesses different briefly. You know, there's been announcements of these projects or programs. I think the real questions that folks should be asking, whether as individuals or business owners or reporters, asking, okay, how many people can get tested? Not how many tests can be run by a PCR machine somewhere. Can anyone who gets a test or who's suspected of having been exposed get a test? In what time scale? Do we have a sense of the prevalence in different populations? Are we able now to trace out everyone's contacts? What is the capacity of that tracing? And how does that capacity compare to what we think are circulating cases? And if there's a mismatch, then that may not be the right time. We need to build up that capacity, just like the flattening the curve idea was so as not to overwhelm the healthcare system. We also need to raise capacity of tracking and tracing to continue to push the numbers down. I do think there'll be businesses different, but if we look at other places in the world, like South Korea, for example, there are some positive stories of intensive tracking and tracing that have led to more opening up of businesses, to more normalcy. Yes, people still go out with masks and so on, but that would be a a relief compared to the situation now where there's significant uncertainty and risk because we just don't know yet who's infectious, who's not, can we get tested, and so on. So I hope that my real intent here is to emphasize how much we can move forward through systemic increases in testing and tracking to get to the point where we can get back to business, at least as different, but business as well as safely reengage. All right. So, Mark, we're running out of time. I, I want to. I'm going to offer you a choice. Uh, for one of them is to uh, stick with what uh, I promoted at the very beginning of the show, which is to give us some sense of why President Trump's decision to cut off funding for the World Health Organization at this moment in time uh, may have an impact that uh, will be detrimental to all of us, or can or or we can finish talking about whether whether we have the tools in place. Uh, to really get back to work here in Georgia. Your call, Mark. Well, let me mention something about WHO, because it is a critically important organization. The battle against the coronavirus is a battle against the horrendous enemy. It's a terrible enemy. We've seen that. You turn on TV, you see how horrible this enemy is. This is a global enemy. It's not just within our country. It's around the world. And we have porous borders. As long as it exists in other places, it will continue to be a risk for us. We've got to protect us here by finding it and fighting it there. That's how we protect ourselves. And the good news is that WHO gives us a way to all come together. WHO has 194 member countries and that's the only way we're going to mobilize a global battle against this. That's the good news. WHO is really well situated to do that. They have offices and people and participation from almost every country on the planet. The bad news is that when we finish this fight against the coronavirus, there will be sure as shooting more to come. These viruses are emerging from animal populations, and they will continue to emerge, maybe a year later, maybe two years later, but it definitely will come. And we need the WHO to help find this when it comes up in those other countries. 
We need WHO to help us mobilize the fight. We need them so that we can learn what's working in the other countries and we can apply it here. WHO has some problems, to be sure. Every big bureaucracy has problems. It may be slow. It may be burdened down by politics and bureaucratic things, but it can save our life. It can save our country. It's so important to continue. CDC's budget is $12 billion, and CDC has responsibility for one country. The WHO's budget is less than half of that. It's $5 billion, and they have responsibility for 193 other countries. I mean, it's way underfunded. It's an underfunded mandate to protect the world, but it's the best thing we have, and we've got to protect it. We've got to strengthen it. It does a world of good. We need it. Kevin, Kevin, let me give you a chance to jump in. We're really running out of time, but any final observations that you want to make as we've listened to these two experts who have, I'm so grateful for all of the information we've gotten today. Um, You editorialized the other day, you not personally, but the paper did, on concerns about the opening of the state. You also did, as everybody said on this show today, recognize and sympathize with the governor's dilemma here. Um, But hearing the conversation today, uh, it reinforces, I think, for many of us, the fact that um, we have got to maintain uh, the behavior that we've undertaken that's at least uh, flattened the curve a bit. I would say, Bill, I'm by nature an optimist, and I think that, uh, as we've talked about, when people know what to do, they get clear information that they trust. We have seen Georgians, Atlantans, Americans respond positively and change the trajectory of infection. And I think that's the call out to our leaders is let the people know what's going on, let them know what's being asked of them. And I believe they will respond, and that's at the core of how we will defeat this problem. Kevin Riley, I appreciate your uh, concluding remarks on the show today. And, of course, I'm always glad when you're on with me. Joshua Weitz of Georgia Tech and uh, uh, Mark Rosenberg, uh, I'm so grateful to the two of you. Uh, Your expertise really helps I think our listeners get a better handle on what we're experiencing right now. So thank you both. And I, I'm certain we're going to want to talk to you again at, in the near future because this is not going away anytime soon. So Joshua and Mark, thanks so much for your participation. Uh, that's it. We are completely out of time. We're completely out of time uh, for today's political rewind. Again, tomorrow we'll talk to uh, the mayors about how they're responding to the governor's uh, order uh, and also about what each of their communities is doing right now in terms of coronavirus. Um, Also, remember, I want to hear from you about how you're doing individually as you struggle with all this. Email me at bnigut, B-N-I-G-U-T, at gpb.org. I try to respond as quickly as possible, but I do want to hear from you. Take care. See you all again tomorrow.